Welcome to the Raising Biotech podcast. I'm your host, Sarani Fernando, and thanks for tuning in. This podcast has a mission of exploring biotechs raising impressive funds to develop ambitious medical breakthroughs. I speak with CEOs and founders to get origin stories, missions, and future visions for the company. And I also talk with relevant medical and industry experts to get more context on the company's potential to really make a difference in healthcare. Today, we're taking a deep dive into Okra Bio, a UK-based company founded in 2019, setting out to develop RNA therapies for chronic liver diseases. Three years in, and they were able to raise an impressive $30 million as they move closer to the clinic. There's always been a huge unmet need for drugs treating chronic liver diseases. And while many companies have tried their hand at developing successful treatments, We've unfortunately had to witness a slew of failures and watch billions of development dollars go down the drain because it's just really hard to show that a drug can convincingly work in the liver. Okrabio is taking a different approach and one of those is doing its early research in human livers versus animal models. The company will soon look to raise further funds to take its drug candidates into the clinic. In this episode, I talk to founder and CEO Jack O'Meara about the company's origin story, ethos, what it's like to be a young CEO trying to finance an early stage biotech, and future plans to get its therapies into the clinic. I'm also joined by Dr. Scott Friedman, Chief of the Division of Liver Diseases at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and he'll help us contextualize the technology's potential to fill that unmet need. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Jack. Thanks for joining the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really glad to be here. So just to kick us off, are you able to give us a brief overview of the problem you're trying to solve with the company and the uniqueness of your technology and mission? Yeah, well, basically, when we started the company, we wanted to take on liver disease, which, as you probably well know, is one of the top 10 global killers. But it's actually the third leading cause of premature death, which I don't think a lot of people appreciate. And as we were setting out to try and tackle this big challenge, we tried to identify why hasn't there been much success in liver disease to date? And we really identified three major challenges. The first is on the biology side. As a sector, we still don't really have a great handle on what's actually driving liver disease. So we use a lot of advanced genomics and new computational approaches to try and uncover clues as to what actually might be better ways to address the problem. The second is that we are founded on the thesis that using advanced genomics married with all of the latest computational techniques, we'll be able to find better targets to treat the disease and validate them in human-centric models that ultimately lead to a higher probability of success for, for patients who suffer from the disease. And then lastly, rather than going into complicated long-term chronic liver disease trials, which tend to be very expensive and so much so that it's even off-putting for large pharma companies, we looked for sort of short-term, tractable initial clinical studies that we could get into the clinic quickly, demonstrate that our medicines work, and then from there, sort of stepping stone into the bigger, more complex challenges in the liver disease field. The long-term view for the company is that ultimately we would love to try to develop an intervention that acts a bit like how statins have really changed the course of treatment for heart disease patients, where we can effectively develop drugs that could get ahead of the disease symptoms and prevent liver degeneration, which we know is inherently associated with age, uh, and in doing so, um, maintain a healthier metabolism and healthier liver function for, for longer for people. But that's a 10-year-plus vision for the company. Um, for the next few years, we're very focused on sort of niche, tractable, short-term trials where we can 
um, really get in there and, and prove out the science and prove out that the technology. So we have some pretty big goals there, but let's rewind a bit to where it all began for Jack, who founded the company when he was just 26 years old. He's got a degree in biomedical engineering from the University of Galway, where tissue engineering was his big focus. He then moved to the US and worked in drug development for a company called Avexis, which some of you may know made history in bringing the first major gene therapy to market and got bought by Novartis for almost $9 billion. I found that experience very sort of impactful and, and that the profound impact of advanced therapeutics was, was something to behold. We had kids walking around who would have otherwise um, had a terminal uh, death sentence, but were effectively cured in a lot of ways from the symptoms of the disease. So after continuing as a healthcare consultant in the US, he missed his home of Ireland. And in 2019, he decided to move closer to home to the UK. It was then that he connected with Dr. Quinn Wills, his now co-founder and the former head of advanced genomics at Nova Nordisk. And they kind of have a very unique biotech founder meet cute story. We kind of hit it off pretty, pretty quickly. We, we first connected, I had been, did a stint in Tanzania working for a friend's NGO there. And I called Quinn because I'd read about his research and he was in Costa Rica building a treehouse. So we had this sort of kindred spirits moment before we ever decided to go into business together. And he had just left his role at Novo Nordisk and had and been voicing a lot of frustration around, we do all this human tissue research, we do all this big data, we got all the advanced sexy technologies, but then everything goes into a mouse and a mouse is a supremely disappointing sort of end goal when it so poorly recapitulates human disease state and doesn't really tell us much about actually human liver disease. Like we know every NASH drug that we talked about has that has gotten into the clinic has ultimately failed pretty catastrophically, but they all work beautifully in a mouse at one point. Mm-hmm. So so the mice aren't really telling us what we need to know about the disease. So, so we got together on this idea of, well, taking discarded donor organs that can't be used for transplant because they largely have too much fat content built up on them and because the donor organ quality has been on the decline for the last 20 years. And then keeping these organs, these human organs alive on machines and basically using these as a way to study and interrogate the biology of liver disease, basically using an actual human disease liver as a model for human liver disease so that we could test our medicines in a human organ. And that was a lot of the, the initial sort of um, light bulb idea. And then as we built it out and sort of began talking through how would we begin to build a company on the back of this thesis, we started to really explore, well, what would be the first clinical studies and how do we avoid sort of a lot of these really big, expensive, catastrophic failures that the folks that have come before us have, have seen intercept. I think that's sort of the classic poster child of Nash tragedy. So just to put some of those catastrophic failures into context, because liver disease is a silent killer where patients don't know their diagnosis until their very late stage in the disease, that's actually what makes the clinical trials to develop drugs long, complicated and expensive. Over the last decade or so, many companies have tried and failed to tackle a serious fatty liver disease called NASH non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. It's estimated that around 115 million adults around the world have NASH, and its prevalence is increasing, particularly in the West, with obesity and type 2 diabetes epidemics. One of those big failures came from a company called Intercept, who in 2014 was worth $8 billion based on its high hopes to produce a NASH treatment. But a string of mixed clinical trials and FDA rejections led to it having to shut down operations this year, 2023, and it sold its remaining assets for a relatively measly $800 million. 
But that doesn't seem to be turning companies away from developing drugs for national liver diseases because companies know that the problem is big and so is the potential cash prize at the end. It's about figuring out how to avoid potential landmines on that journey. And Okra is doing that by first tackling diseases seen as lower hanging fruit, proving that its approach to developing liver targeting therapies is solid. And then they'll attempt to tackle those bigger chronic diseases like NASH. So how do we find clinical indications where we can get into the clinic quickly and show that our medicines really have promise based on all of this advanced genomics, based on this human tissue research? And then once we see success there, move with more confidence into those much larger, much more expensive trials. And so from this very unique and novel drug discovery thesis, Quinn and Jack began to explore what a partnership might look like and started to build a company. And part of that was looking for investors. We kicked the tires in London, created a strong research network in Oxford, and we started to build out some of the organization there. When we did the whole investor roadshow on this side of the pond, where I live, we quickly realized that it's just a very small pool of investors, and there's a very sort of traditional archetype with which they will want to fund. And something quite as scientifically novel as keeping human organs alive outside the body and uh, avoiding animal testing and sort of non-traditional founding duo um, we found a lot more success in the US. So we, we actually kind of packed our bags and moved to California for the first six months of the company's life and did a lot of the fundraising uh, on the West Coast and then came back to Europe and built out the, the organization and scientific team here. I mean, I, I just think there's amazingly talented people and scientific researchers in this side of the pond, but the capital ecosystem just isn't quite there. This isn't exactly a new concept in the biotech industry. Often companies that are founded outside of the U.S. find that they just can't get local investors to buy into biotech ventures the way that U.S. investors do. This generally stems from the stronger capitalist culture in the U.S. and the larger high-risk, high-reward appetite of the U.S. investor community. There have seen bigger success. When you see companies that have this enormous success in, in sort of unusual circumstances, it gives you more confidence to take yeah. more risk. And in Europe, we haven't had until recently. I mean, I think companies like Argenix and Genmab, they're really building ambitious, large businesses. And that, that will inspire European investors to take, to take more risk. I was also interested to know how it's been for Jack starting a biotech at such a young age. And I mean young relative to the average biotech founder. I think it poses challenges more than anything else for, for myself. Mm -hmm. I, I looked at it like this. I just had a great experience in the U.S. I'd learned a ton. I really embraced sort of the U.S. entrepreneurial, ambitious sort of culture. And then I had no family or dependents. So I thought, well, look, it kind of now feels like a very wise time to just absolutely throw myself at trying to build a company. Then I was fortunate enough to meet a phenomenal co-founder and, and I really admired the sort of ambitious and elegant scientific thesis behind the business. So I felt it was a good time to, to go for it because it is, it is a very all-encompassing process to try and create something and pull something from the earth into existence. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult journey. So that was sort of why I went for it at the age that I did. And I think you have to be a little bit paranoid because you just know that you don't have as much knowledge as many of the other people in the ecosystem. It feels like you have to work much harder than everyone else to try and get to the same point. And you probably get a little bit uh, of a more difficult time getting there. But with surrounding yourself with great people uh, and building a great board, building a great advisory board, you, know, you can learn quite quickly on the job. This also impacted Okra's fundraising journey. Unlike the tech industry, where it seems pretty common for successful companies to be founded by college undergrads, the biotech industry is just so much more complicated. 
and biotech founders often need many years of experience under their belt in order to open VC doors because the business of drug development is very expensive and failure is a lot more common than success. In technology, your goal really is to create the market. You, you start from nothing and then you have to try and create something that people want and attract them to your product. Whereas in biotech, it's almost the opposite in that you know there's a set amount of people who need your product. You can quantify that. And then your job is to just minimize risk all the way along the journey to get there. There's huge binary risk. And that just creates a different culture within the sort of ecosystem itself. Because there's such a big dollars involved, you need to minimize risk anywhere you can. And that extends to management teams, etc. as well. So there is a real sort of difficult role to play as a relatively young and, and by virtue of being young, relatively inexperienced mm -hmm. executive in the sector. Nonetheless, Jack and Quinn managed to raise $30 million in a Series A in December 2022. And that was from a bunch of different venture capital firms and individual investors, the major one being Coastal Ventures, which is more known for its investments in tech, clean tech and health tech. Coastal Ventures in California have had a lot of success in, in taking contrarian bets on non-traditional sort of founder archetypes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think we were intentional with the types of investors that we targeted, and we've been very fortunate with the, with the folks that we brought on board. Mm -hmm. Jack and Quinn spent the first few years building out the drug discovery platform and amassed what he says is more genomic data on the liver than anyone else in the field using tools like single cell and spatial sequencing to decide on the focus for the company. To give us a bit more context on Okra's mission and scientific thesis, I spoke to Dr. Scott Friedman, who is the Dean for Therapeutic Discovery and Chief of the Division of Liver Diseases at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's got 40 years of experience in the field and has performed a lot of pioneering research into the underlying causes of scarring and fibrosis that comes with chronic liver diseases. And because of that experience, the company has brought him on as a scientific advisor. It's a very ambitious program, but what they're trying to do is correlate specific changes in gene expression, mostly in hepatocytes, which is the main workhorse cell of the liver, and to uh, correlate that with specific elements or levels of injury in the tissue. He explained that if there are specific genes that always seem to be up or down consistently when there is the most severe liver damage, there's potential to manipulate those genes as a potential target. And there's hope that there might be one or more specific targets for a potential therapy. We built out these sort of layers of human-centric validation models. So things like the organ perfusion platform, as well as a tissue slice platform. And increasingly now we're focusing in on what will be our first clinical study. So speaking about the organ perfusion platform, that's basically where you keep an organ alive in a machine outside of the body. I was sort of racking my brain as to how they're able to get all these random livers and where they keep them. We have been through quite a journey to get to an operating model that works. We we initially partnered with transplant centers across the world, all of the top um, folks that you would have heard of. And what we realized through that process was that transplant surgeons don't want to do preclinical research or just they have better things to do, or they have more important things to do. So it became very difficult to really hit the milestones and the timelines that we had, we'd committed to. So we ultimately closed down 10 global transplant partnerships with tier one sort of academic hospitals and built our own research site. 
This research site based in New York is like Okra's own 24-7 organ ICU. There's a phone centre, nurse practitioner, perfusionists supporting the surgical process, as well as transplant surgeons that are direct hires of Okra. Okra's ICU is set up to receive a liver at any hour, and these are livers from donors that are unusable for transplant, but usable for research. It's quite a process to bench them, connect them to the device that pumps them with blood and oxygen and filters out um, urea and all of the sort of key components of, of liver physiology. And then we, we keep them alive for about five days and dose them with, a, with an intervention and monitor like you would a patient. It is kind of a phase zero preclinical clinical study. So we're monitoring when we treat this human liver with one of our drugs, how is that affecting the state of the organ? And are we actually seeing improved liver function, no negative effects on the organ? Really building a very robust picture on the effect of the, the treatment. Dr. Friedman said he's been pretty impressed with Okra's ICU center and the workflow at their lab. You know, academics, including my own lab, have done some single cell sequencing to identify genes expressed in human liver, but not to the scale and to the depth that they're pursuing. I think that's really unique. It probably couldn't be done in a pure academic lab because they have access to uh, livers through different organizations where they have to pay for those livers. So they have assembled a really impressive workflow where they collect these livers, they do the gene sequencing and you know, getting to the point where they will be able to declare some of the specific genes that their data indicate are potential targets for therapy. So they've got the livers, the gene sequencing methodology, the potential targets. But what are the treatments? We use siRNA as their modality, primarily because it's very fast to go from a target hypothesis to a potential drug candidate. Within a, a couple of weeks, we'll spin up a, an siRNA drug candidate. So it's a bit like mRNA, but rather than turning on a, a protein, we basically turn off a, a protein. So most of us will know that RNA, or ribonucleic acid, plays an important role in the human body. In a gross simplification, RNA takes instructions from DNA to build proteins within our body. SIRNA stands for small interfering RNA. They're artificially synthesized RNA molecules and are routinely used in molecular biology for silencing a gene of interest. And SIRNAs can be generated pretty quickly once you know what you're trying to silence or interfere with. So we can use all the genomic data that we've developed to mine that to come up with potential hypotheses and what, what particular gene is driving the phenotype that we're interested in. And when I say phenotype, when he says phenotype, they're looking at the characteristics of that liver disease seen in the liver histology, meaning looking at the fat content in a liver biopsy. And over the last 18 months, Okra has been doing deep phenotyping to study how genes and cells talk to each other and how that changes through different diseases. We use imaging AI tools to quantify the level of disease state within a particular tissue. And then we look for molecular signatures in our transcriptomic data to give us clues as to what's driving that particular phenotype, what's driving that disease process. And when we have a, a hypothesis or a belief that we see some signal in all our data that this is linked to the disease, we'll go directly into testing that in a whole human liver kept alive on a machine. It's a very iterative process because it allows us to go quickly through new targets, which, which you just can't do in, in a sort of more traditional small molecule drug development program. And because of Okra's unique approach, any targets they uncover become immediately relevant to human disease. They're looking at it with a, sort of a big data approach using deep phenotyping. They're really going to collect a mountain of 
valuable data that of course is going to be important for them, but ultimately could be quite informative for the field. So while IRCRA is taking some big bets that their deep phenotyping approach might unveil the best drug targets, Dr. Friedman discussed their choice of siRNA as a therapeutic and if that's really the right approach. siRNA is the most well-trod. There are, of course, now therapies being developed or even approved in humans for siRNA therapy. So there, that's another means of de-risking. There's also other ways to do G-editing, for example, CRISPR, uh, which is also uh, edging its way into the clinical realm. We literally just saw the first approval of a CRISPR gene editing therapy from Vertex, and that happened in the UK on November 16th. It will, I suppose, be worth revisiting whether CRISPR is an alternative to siRNA based on specific targets they identify. Okra is still very early days now. They're in the preclinical phase, so they have a long uphill battle ahead of them tackling years of complex clinical trials. Dr. Friedman did say that Okra has a very compelling strategy to potentially de-risk clinical trials. The fact that they're using human livers, all of their computer modeling and deep phenotyping, as well as delivering the gene via well-established hepatocyte receptor. Currently, they're focused mostly on a method to deliver genes to hepatocytes using an old system that avoids a hepatocyte-specific receptor, the ACIL or fibrosa mucoid receptor. And they can do that quite effectively. They're not the only ones using that platform to develop or deliver genes to hepatocytes, but they're the only one that are basing the genes they choose on this massive amount of data that they're collecting. But liver disease pathology is extremely complex, and Urka will have to be thinking about a lot of potential challenges in parallel. The first challenge will be to prove that the target that they've identified is kind of at the nexus or the crux of the disease pathogenic sequence. Because there are a lot of things that are abnormal and they need to know that the target they choose is really kind of an Achilles heel for the disease. But even if Okra is successfully able to hit that Achilles heel target, the question is whether that can significantly translate to meaningful disease outcomes for patients. To date, that's really been the biggest problem is there have been, you know, several drugs that look say that have a strong rationale and that go into clinical trials. But in the end, while the drugs touch the target appropriately, they don't really move the needle in terms of reversing disease, which suggests there are a lot of different pathways that are driving this disease currently in the secret. He said the secret will be really to identify sort of nodal points of gene regulation that control a whole sequence of downstream events associated with the disease that they can then go in and antagonize or manipulate. One thing that's important to remember, not just for this company, but for every company is, and they know this, that ultimately a drug must be shown to improve how a patient feels, functions, or survives. Not only do they feel better, but are they living longer? Uh, are they improving disease? And those are the clinical endpoints that ultimately the FDA and the EMEA are going to require. Not just an improvement in the biopsy, uh, but rather a, a true improvement in how patients function and survive. So we've talked a lot about the complications to show efficacy in liver diseases, but we can't forget that safety is really the most important thing for a drug to get approved. While theoretically there aren't any safety flags with siRNA therapeutics, this industry is famous for its safety curveballs, so that's something that needs to be considered. There's no reason a priori to think that this approach is less safe than any other gene therapy approach. I think the bigger issue is are there untoward effects of antagonizing a gene 
in hepatocytes that haven't been anticipated because that gene participates in other functions that weren't previously known. He explained that a knockdown of a gene may help one element of the disease, for example, lowering cholesterol, but maybe it won't help other components of liver function in a way we can't anticipate. Beyond thinking about choosing the right gene to target and developing a safe and effective therapeutic, Dr. Friedman says there are a lot of other considerations for okra to think about for its therapeutics to make a meaningful impact. Is the target unique? How long does it last? Will patients be prepared to take an injectable for their disease? And is it more potent than other existing therapies on the market, given that by the time okra has something approved, potentially 10 years down the line, who knows, another company may have achieved an approval by then. Moving on to sort of next business plans, you guys raised $30 million last year. Where does that take you? So that takes us through to nominating our first candidate for the clinic and setting up all of the preparatory work for that. We're also planning to, to partner with a large pharma um, to begin to build out sort of a discovery collaboration piece of our work. And then we'll go out to do the Series B on the back of those two milestones. Okra is still deciding on what diseases it will study in its first clinical trial and much of that will also depend on the partnership it signs and the money it receives from that agreement, as well as its next funding round. Jack said some disease indications that okra could possibly tackle on its own might include treating livers for liver transplantation or alcoholic hepatitis. For the bigger indications like NASH, it's just more preferable to hold hands with a larger and more experienced partner to conduct those clinical trials. I'm not speaking for the company here, so I haven't talked to them about how they're prioritizing these different diseases. Dr. Friedman said there is definitely value in getting some traction by establishing proof of principle in smaller markets, and there are a number of parts that Okra could take. So I, I think the first issue will be to establish that the gene targets they're focusing on are expressed or abnormal in hepatocytes because that's our main targeting. Uh, and certainly there are a number of genetic diseases there as well as uh, rare diseases that uh, for which there is a paucity of treatments like NASH, but where the disease is a little bit less complex than, than uh, MASH. So for example, uh, yeah, autoimmune diseases of the liver, some monogenic diseases of the liver, uh, storage diseases, uh, pediatric liver disease, I think, is a really, really big one. Uh, and I think ultimately they're going to need to turn attention to that because like uh, adult diseases, it's a huge unmet need and very, very few treatments. It's a small company like Okrabio in, in Oxford is not necessarily best positioned to commercialize at scale a, pr a treatment for a disease that affects so many people around the world. So in light of that, that's the type of product that would make a lot of sense to partner with a large pharma once we're through the initial proof concept or phase two clinical studies to demonstrate that it works. There are diseases where it is a type of scale of indication where a small company can be gilded to build out a franchise. And, and I think we'll be sensible on an indication by indication basis as to what we want to really go all the way and commercialize versus what we want to bring in a larger partner who has that mm -hmm. sort of global reach to, to get to, to patients in, a, in the most effective way. Okra is planning to enter a Series B financing round soon, and while the exact amount hasn't been solidified, the number will speak to how many different drug candidates Okra can take forward into the clinic. 
The vision is to build a multi-product pharmaceutical company. And then, as you rightly pointed out earlier in this conversation, clinical development is oftentimes very binary and can really end a, a vision if one particular product doesn't work. So our goal is to raise a large round to take more than one product into the clinic in parallel and really ensure the, the long-term success of the scientific thesis, that being that using advanced genomics in partnership with human-centric models will be able to improve success mm-hmm. for liver disease patients. We'll be clarifying exactly how much and all the numbers over the next um, next six months. Looking further down the road, Jack has intentions to be in this for the long haul and would love to try and build out Okra into a large publicly listed company in Europe with a multi-product portfolio. This is maybe a bit of the naivete of youth. <laughs> <laughs> in the last hundred years, we haven't seen a very large, ambitious company come out of Europe. And it's such an important part of the economy, the society, that these companies, that entrepreneurship really is sufficiently ambitious to create employment and do all those important things. So I I would love to see us go and take products into the market and really prove this scientific thesis that there is an alternative way to do drug discovery that will result in a higher probability of success in medicines that ultimately uh, improve the lives of of many patients around the world. So anyway, so who knows where it all ends up. We will be responsible along the journey. But if we see success and continue to prove out the platform, I'd love to try and do something like what the Americans have done for the last uh, 20, 30 years. So go public and just take it out, like build that yeah. big biotech story. Maybe that's the, the benefit of having lots of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can dream big, you know, like, yeah, who knows, exactly. you might also be bought out tomorrow. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, We'll be spreading out a press release in two days. <laughs> no, I'm very aware of, you know, if the right thing comes along, if the right conversation happens, then plans can change and you know you just get the right value for the company and also for patients really but um yeah we'll we'll see how you guys go there's a quote from her boyer the co-founder of genentech that says i always maintain that the best attribute that we had was our naivete if we had known about all the problems and challenges we would have thought twice about starting. Naivete was the extra added ingredient in biotechnology. And maybe there is something to naivete. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's it for this episode of Raising Biotech, a pretty unique and next generation biotech story and one to definitely watch over the coming years. Thanks to my guests, Jack O'Meara and Dr. Scott Friedman for giving up their valuable time and to you for listening in. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe and follow, share it around and rate and review it on Apple or Spotify. And message me directly for any feedback or suggestions. But for now, I'm Sarani Fernando and I'll see you next time on Raising Biotech.